Section 9 of Chapter 19 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 19, Section 9. It is also to be observed that few of those who showed at this time the greatest desire to increase the political power of the people were as yet prepared to emancipate the press from the control of the government. The Licensing Act, which had passed as a matter of course in 1685, expired in 1693, and was renewed, not however without an opposition, which, though feeble when compared with the magnitude of the object in dispute, proved that the public mind was beginning dimly to perceive how closely civil freedom and freedom of conscience are connected with freedom of discussion. On the history of the Licensing Act, no preceding writer has thought it worth while to expand any care or labor. Yet surely the events which led to the establishment of the liberty of the press in England and in all countries peopled by the English race, may be thought to have as much interest for the present generation as any of those battles and sieges of which the most minute details have been carefully recorded. During the first three years of William's reign, scarcely a voice seems to have been raised against the restrictions which the law imposed on literature. Those restrictions were in perfect harmony with the theory of the government held by the Tories, and were not, in practice, galling to the Whigs. Roger Lestrange, who had been licenser under the last two kings of the House of Stuart, and who had shown as little tenderness to exclusionists and Presbyterians in that character as in his other character of observator, was turned out of office at the Revolution and was succeeded by a Scotch gentleman who, on account of his passion for rare books and his habit of attending all sales of libraries, was known in the shops and coffee houses near St. Paul's by the name of Catalogue Fraser. Fraser was a zealous Whig. By Whig authors and publishers he was extolled as the most impartial and humane man but the conduct which obtained their applause drew on him the abuse of the Tories and was not altogether pleasing to his official superior Nottingham. No serious difference, however, seems to have risen till the year 1692. In that year an honest old clergyman named Walker, who had, in the time of the Commonwealth, been Godden's curate, wrote a book which convinced all sensible and dispassionate readers that Godden and not Charles I, was the author of the Icon Basiliki. This book Fraser suffered to be printed if he had authorized the publication of a work in which the Gospel of St. John or the Epistle to the Romans had been represented as spurious, the indignation of the High Church party could hardly have been greater. The question was not literary, but religious. Doubt was in piety. In truth, the icon was to many fervent royalists a supplementary revelation. One of them, indeed, had gone so far as to propose that lessons taken out of the inestimable little volume should be read in the churches. Fraser found it necessary to resign his place, 
and Nottingham appointed a gentleman of good blood and scanty fortune named Edmund Boone. This change of men produced an immediate and total change of system, for Boone was as strong a Tory as a conscientious man who had taken the oaths could possibly be. He had been conspicuous as a persecutor of nonconformists and a champion of the doctrine of passive obedience. He had edited Filmer's observed treatise on the origin of government and had written an answer to the paper which Algernon Sidney had delivered to the sheriffs on Tower Hill. Nor did Boone admit that, in swearing allegiance to William and Mary, he had done anything inconsistent with his old creed, for he had succeeded in convincing himself that they reigned by right of conquest and that it was the duty of an Englishman to serve them as faithfully as Daniel had served Darius, or as Nehemiah had served Artaxerxes. This doctrine, whatever peace it may bring to his own conscience, found little favor with any party. The Whigs loathed it as servile, the Jacobites loathed it as revolutionary. Great numbers of Tories had doubtless submitted to William on the ground that he was, rightfully or wrongfully, king in possession but very few of them were disposed to allow that his possession had originated in conquest. Indeed, the plea which had satisfied the weak and narrow-minded Boone was a mere fiction and, had it been truth, would have been a truth not to be uttered by Englishmen without agonies of shame and mortification. He, however, clung to his favorite whimsy with a tenacity which the general disapprobation only made more intense. His old friends, the steadfast adherents of indefeasible hereditary right, grew cold and reserved. He asked Sancroft's blessing, and got only a sharp word, and a black look. He asked Ken's blessing, and Ken, though not much in the habit of transgressing the rules of Christian charity and courtesy, murmured something about a little scribbler. Thus cast out by one faction, Boone was not received by any other. He formed, indeed, a class apart, for he was at once a zealous Filmerite and a zealous Williamite. He held that pure monarchy, not limited by any law or contract, was the form of government which had been divinely ordained. But he held that William was now the absolute monarch who might annul the Great Charter, abolish trial by jury, or impose taxes by royal proclamation, without forfeiting the right to be implicitly obeyed by Christian men. As to the rest, Boone was a man of some learning, mean understanding and unpopular manners. He had no sooner entered on his functions than all Paternaster Row and Little Britain were in ferment. The Whigs had, under Fraser's administration, enjoyed almost as entire a liberty as if there had been no censorship but they were now severely treated as in the days of Lestrange. A history of the bloody Azizis was about to be published and was expected to have as great a run as the Pilgrim's Progress, but his new licensor refused his imprimatur. The book, he said, represented rebels and schismatics as heroes and martyrs, and he would not sanction it for its weight in gold. A charge delivered by Lord Warrington to the grandeur of Cheshire was not permitted to appear, because his lordship had spoken contemptuously of divine right and passive obedience. 
Julian Johnson found that, if he wished to promulgate his notions of government, he must again have recourse, as in the evil times of King James, to a secret press. Such restraint as this, coming after several years of unbounded freedom, naturally produced violent exasperation. Some Whigs began to think that censorship itself was a grievance. All Whigs agreed in pronouncing the new censor unfit for his post, and were prepared to join in an effort to get rid of him. Of the transactions which terminated in Boone's dismission, and which produced the first parliamentary struggle for the liberty of unlicensed printing, we have accounts written by Boone himself and by others. But there are strong reasons for believing that in none of those accounts is the whole truth to be found. It may perhaps not be impossible, even at this distance of time, to put together dispersed fragments of evidence in such a manner as to produce an authentic narrative which would have astonished the unfortunate licenser himself. There was then about town a man of good family, of some reading, and of some small literary talent named Charles Blount. In politics he belonged to the extreme section of the Whig party. In the days of the exclusion bill, he had been one of Shaftesbury's brisk boys, and had, under the signature of Junius Brutus, magnified the virtues and public services of Titus Oates, and exhorted the Protestants to take signal vengeance on the Papist for the fire of London and for the murder of Godfrey. As to the theological questions which were an issue between Protestants and Papists, Blount was perfectly impartial. He was an infidel, and the head of a small school of infidels who were troubled with morbid desire to make converts. He translated from the Latin translation part of the life of Apollonius of Tenya, and appended it to notes of which the flippant profaneness called forth the severe censure of an unbeliever of a very different order, the illustrious Baal. Blount also attacked Christianity in several original treaties, or rather in several treaties purporting to be original, for he was the most audacious of literary thieves, and transcribed, without acknowledgment, whole pages from authors who had preceded him. His delight was to worry the priests by asking them how light existed before the sun was made, how paradise could be bounded by Pison, Gion, Hedekiel, and Euphrates, how serpents moved before they were condemned to crawl, and where Eve found the thread to stitch her fig leaves. To his speculation on these subjects he gave the lofty name of the Oracles of Reason, and indeed whatever he said or wrote was considered as oracle by his disciples. Of those disciples the most noted was a bad writer named Gildan, who lived to pester another generation with doggerel and slander, and whose memory is still preserved, not by his own voluminous works, but by two or three lines in which his stupidity and venality had been contemptuously mentioned by Pope. Little as either the intellectual or the moral character of Blount may seem to deserve respect, it is in a great measure to him that we must attribute the emancipation of the English press. Between him and the licensers there was a feud of long standing. Before the Revolution, one of his heterodox treaties had been grievously mutilated by Lestrange, and at last suppressed by orders from Lestrange's superior, the Bishop of London. Boone was a scarcely less severe critic than Lestrange, 
Blount, therefore, began to make war on the censorship and the censor. The hostilities were commenced by a tract which came forth without any license, and which is entitled, A Just Vindication of Learning and of the Liberty of the Press, by Philopatris. Whoever reads this piece, and is not aware that Blount was one of the most unscrupulous plagiaries that ever lived, will be surprised to find, mingled with the poor thoughts and poor words of the third-rate pamphleteer, passages so elevated in sentiment and style that they would be worthy of the greatest name in letters. The truth is that the just vindication consists chiefly of garbled extracts from the Areopagitica of Milton. That noble discourse had been neglected by the generation to which it was addressed, had sunk into oblivion, and was at the mercy of every pilferer. The literary workmanship of Blount resembled the architectural workmanship of those barbarians who used the Colosseum and the theater of Pompeii as quarries, who built hovels out of Ionian friezes and propped cowhouses on pillars of lazulite. Blount concluded, as Milton had done, by recommending that any book might be printed without a license, provided that the name of the author or publisher were registered. The just vindication was well received. The blow was speedily followed up. There still remained in the Aeropagitica many fine passages which Blount had not used in his first pamphlet. Out of these passages he constructed a second pamphlet entitled Reasons for the Liberty of Unlicensed Printing. To these reasons he appended a postscript entitled A Just and True Character of Edmund Boone. This character was written with extreme bitterness. Passages were quoted from the licensor's writing to prove that he held the doctrines of passive obedience and non-resistance. He was accused of using his power systematically for the purpose of favoring the enemies and silencing the friends of the sovereigns whose bread he ate, and it was asserted that he was the friend and the pupil of his predecessor, Sir Roger. Blount's character of Boone could not be publicly sold, but it was widely circulated. While it was passing from hand to hand, and while the Whigs were everywhere exclaiming against the new censor as a second less strange, he was requested to authorize the publication of an anonymous work entitled King William and Queen Mary Conquerors. He readily and indeed eagerly complied, for in truth there was between the doctrines which he had long professed and the doctrines which were propounded in this treatise a coincidence so exact that many suspected him of being the author. Nor was this suspicion weakened by a passage to which a compliment was paid to his political writings. But the real author was that very Blount who was, at the very time, laboring to inflame the public both against the licensing act and the licensor. Blount's motive may easily be divined. His own opinions were diametrically opposed to those which, on this occasion, he put forward in the most offensive manner. It is therefore impossible to doubt that his object was to ensnare and to ruin Boone. It was a base and wicked scheme, but it cannot be denied that the trap was laid and baited with much skill. The Republican succeeded in personating a high Tory. The atheist succeeded in personating a high churchman. The pamphlet concluded 
with a devout prayer that the God of light and love would open the understanding and govern the will of Englishmen, so that they might see the things which belong to their peace. The censor was in raptures. In every page he found his own thoughts expressed more plainly than he had ever expressed them. Never before, in his opinion, had the true claim of their majesties to obedience been so clearly stated. Every Jacobite who read this admirable tract must inevitably be converted. The non-jurors would flock to take the oaths. The nation, so long divided, would at length be united. From these pleasing dreams, Boone was awakened by learning, a few hours after the appearance of the discourse which had claimed him, that the title page had set all London in a flame, and that the odious words, King William and Queen Mary conquerors, had moved the indignation of multitudes who had never read further. Only four days after the publication, he heard that the House of Commons had taken the matter up, that the book had been called by some members a rascally book, and that, as the author was unknown, a sergeant-at-arms was in search of the licenser. Boone's mind had never been strong, and he was entirely unnerved and bewildered by the fury and suddenness of the storm which had burst upon him. He went to the house. Most of the members who met in the passages and lobbies frowned on him. When he was put to the bar, and after three profound obeisances, ventured to lift his head and look around him, he could read his doom in the angry and contemptuous looks which were cast on him from every side. He hesitated, blundered, contradicted himself, called the speaker my lord, and by his confused way of speaking, raised a tempest of rude laughter which confused him still more. As soon as he had withdrawn, it was unanimously resolved that the obnoxious treaty should be burned in Palace Yard by the common hangman. It was also resolved, without a division, that the king should be requested to remove Boone from the office of licenser. The poor man, ready to faint with grief and fear, was conducted by the officers of the house to a place of confinement. But scarcely was he in prison when a large body of members clamorously demanded a more important victim. Burnett had, shortly after he became Bishop of Salisbury, addressed to the clergy of his diocese a pastoral letter exhorting them to take the oaths. In one paragraph of this letter, he had held language bearing some resemblance to that of the pamphlet which had just been sentenced to the flames. There were, indeed, distinctions which a judicious and impartial tribunal would not have failed to notice, but the tribunal before which Burnett was arraigned was neither judicious nor impartial. His faults had made him many enemies, and his virtues many more. The discontented Whigs complained that he leaned toward the court, the high churchmen that he leaned towards the dissenters, nor can it be supposed that a man of so much boldness and so little tact, a man so indiscreetly frank and so restlessly active, had passed through life without crossing the schemes and wounding the feelings of some whose opinion agreed with his. He was regarded with peculiar malevolence by Howe. Howe had never, even while he was in office, been in the habit of restraining his bitter and petulant tongue, and he had recently been turned out of office in a way which had made him ungovernably ferocious. The history of his dismission is not accurately known, but it was certainly accompanied by some circumstances 
which had cruelly galled his temper. If rumor could be trusted, he had fancied that Mary was in love with him, and had availed himself of an opportunity which offered itself while he was in attendance on her as vice-chamberlain to make some advances which had justly moved her indignation. Soon after he was discarded, he was prosecuted for having, in a fit of passion, beaten one of his servants savagely within the verge of the palace. He had pleaded guilty and had been pardoned, but from this time he showed, on every occasion, the most rancorous personal hatred of his royal mistress, of her husband, and of all who were favored by either. It was known that the queen frequently consulted Burnett, and Howe was possessed with the belief that her severity was to be imputed to Burnett's influence. Now was the time to be revenged. In a long and elaborate speech, the spiteful Whig, for such he still affected to be, represented Burnett as a Tory of the worst class. There should be a law, he said, making it penal for the clergy to introduce politics into their discourses. Formerly they sought to enslave us by crying up the divine and indefeasible right of the hereditary prince. Now they try to arrive at the same result by telling us that we are a conquered people. It was moved that the bishop should be impeached. To this motion there was an unanswerable objection, which the speaker pointed out. The pastoral letter had been written in 1689, and was therefore covered by the Act of Grace, which had been passed in 1690. Yet a member was not ashamed to say, no matter, impeach him, and force him to plead the Act. Few, however, were disposed to take a course so unworthy of a House of Commons. Some wag cried out, burn it! burn it, and this bad pun ran along the benches, and was received with shouts of laughter. It was moved that the pastoral letter should be burned by the common hangman. A long and vehement debate followed, for Burnett was a man warmly loved as well as warmly hated. The great majority of the Whigs stood firmly by him, and his good nature and generosity had made him friends even among the Tories. The contest lasted two days. Montague and Finch, men of widely different opinions, appear to have been foremost among the bishop's champions. An attempt to get rid of the subject by moving the previous question failed. At length, the main question was put, and the pastoral letter was condemned to the flames by a small majority in a full house. The eyes were a hundred and sixty-two, the nose a hundred and fifty-five. The general opinion at least of the capital, seems to have been that Burnett was cruelly treated. End of section 9 Recording by Hugh Gillis